Good morning. It's good to be here at Avant Hope. And I was here for many years, and I've been gone for the last two and a half years, and now I don't recognize most of you. <laughs> so I do recognize many of you, though, and it's very good to be back. This is a short trip for me. I landed in Ontario last night at 6 p.m., and I'm flying out of LAX tonight at 10 o'clock. And I will be back home by 5 a.m. tomorrow. So. Um, didn't want to be away from my family for too long, but it's good to be here today, and I'm glad to be back in Loma Linda, where I lived for nearly 10 years. Um, I can't say that, well, anyway, I can't say that I miss it so much that I still, <laughs> that I still wish that I lived here, but, um, but it is nice to visit, so... Um, and I, I'm living in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee now, and have a nice place out in the country. And so it's nice to, to get out into the country and experience something different. So um, Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and we will get into our message. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for bringing each one of us here today on this Sabbath morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would... Give me just the right words to speak that will reach each one of us, myself included, that are here today so that we will leave this place with a better understanding of maybe something specific in our lives that we've been struggling with and that we will have a better understanding of how to have a meaningful walk with you every day. So just be with me. May we set our um, minds Aside from the cares of life and just focus on you, and again, please speak through me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. The title for my sermon this morning is The Heritage of Jacob, and actually before I get into the message, I might add for the four o'clock meeting this afternoon, how many of you have heard about the 2520? We're going to talk about that this afternoon. We are going to go through an exposition of people who advocate that position, what they say and why they believe what they teach, and they are saying that it's the seal of God and you have to accept this teaching to receive the latter rain and so on and so forth. Then we're going to go through and see what inspiration really says, and then we'll finish up by talking about what our message really is for this time. So that's for this afternoon. But the message for this morning is the heritage of Jacob. And it's taken from a passage of scripture that we often connect to the Sabbath. But I want to look at an element in this passage that maybe is not looked at as often. This is from Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we probably know this verse quite well, especially verse 13, and I will talk about verse 13 a little bit, but we're going to focus in especially in verse 14. Starting in verse 13, the Bible says, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then... Shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord? And I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, 
and feed thee with the, with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. So we see the message about the Sabbath, and connected with the Sabbath message, in verse 14, God says, I will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. Do you want to ride upon the high places of the earth? Do you want to be fed with the heritage of Jacob? Well, it might just help if we know what the high places of the earth are and what the heritage of Jacob is. Does that make sense? What is this glorious promise of riding upon the high places of the earth and of being fed with the heritage of Jacob our father? What is it that is connected to the Sabbath understanding? And I might add, Isaiah chapter 58 is a chapter specifically with a message to God's last day people, a message that takes God's people to task in the first eight to ten verses for fighting over silly things for making an emphasis on points that really don't matter fasting for strife and debate just for debate's sake just for strife's sake and we get camps in our church well I'm on this side I'm on I'm on that side and at the end of the day what we're known for is fighting for issues rather than as the true fast is helping people in need and then the message continues and says, when you understand that the fast that I have chosen for you is not to fight with each other, but to help those in need, then your light will break forth as the morning, your health will spring forth speedily. That is the loud cry message for God's last day people. And then at the end, it talks about the Sabbath message. And when you experience, not fasting for strife and debate, but helping those in need, when you experience the Sabbath as it's designed, you will have the experience of riding upon the high places of the earth and being fed with the heritage of Jacob. And the question is, what is the heritage of Jacob? If you look at the Hebrew word for heritage in the King James, and some of the modern translations, um, I believe, cor correctly translate this word, this word, the word heritage here is inheritance. So God is promising people in the last days, I will feed you with the inheritance of Jacob, your father. Now that sounds pretty good, does it not? To be given the same inheritance that Jacob received. Now, the question is, what is the inheritance of Jacob? You realize that Jacob actually received two inheritances in life. What does the word Jacob mean? Supplanter, deceiver. Jacob, by his very name, was known for being a deceiver, for being a supplanter. He grabbed the heel of Esau on the way out of the womb, and he was defined by his name, and his name fit his character of one who deceived, one who supplanted, one who used his human wisdom to try to accomplish God's will. And so the first inheritance that Jacob receives in his life, he, got, he gained by deception. Is that the inheritance that God plans to give to us? I don't think so. Let's look at where Jacob receives the inheritance 
that God promises to give to us. This is found in Scripture in Genesis chapter 32, starting in verse 24. Genesis chapter 32, starting in verse 24. And this is a very fascinating story. And Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Now let's stop here. What is Jacob doing here? Wrestling with someone all night long? Jacob is by the river Jabbok, and he has received news that his brother Esau is coming with 400 men of war with a war march, a death march, to come to destroy Jacob and his family. And Jacob knows that, humanly speaking, he deserves it. Because Jacob deceived his father Isaac to cheat Esau out of his blessing, out of his inheritance. And so Jacob knows full well that his sin of 20 years earlier is now finally coming back to meet him square in the face. And you know, that's an interesting point for us. Sometimes we think that something we did in the past that it happened and we just kind of got away with it and we don't have to worry about it. But someday, that moment of truth is going to come. If that sin is left unconfessed, unrepented, you will come face to face with that someday. And Jacob realizes 20 years later that he is coming face to face with the wrath of his brother Esau for the sin that he committed 20 years earlier. He left home in a hurry. He never saw his mother again. And because of his deception, Jacob was deceived by his father-in-law. He fell in love with, with Rachel, works for her for seven years. And at the end of the seven years, he gets deceived and gets Leah. How would you like that, guys? And he has to work another seven years. And so here he is, 20 years after his great deception of cheating Esau out of the inheritance, of using his human craft and means and deception, the very given name, Jacob, deceiver, supplanter, he used that characteristic to gain what he thought he should get. And now he realizes that he is coming face to face with the sin of 20 years earlier. And here we see in verse 24, Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Verse 25, and when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Suddenly, Jacob realizes that he is not wrestling with flesh and blood, that he has been wrestling with God face to face all night because God simply takes his finger, touches Jacob's thigh, and Jacob's thigh is out of joint. And Jacob realizes suddenly, I have been wrestling with God in the most intense, earnest struggle all night. I thought that I was wrestling with a man to save my life, but in reality, I was face to face with God. 
And notice what Jacob's response was, because realize, Jacob is fearing for his life. He has come to come aside to plead with God for deliverance, for mercy, and instead he's wrestled with what he thought was a man all night long, and he realizes that the sun is about to come up, and now God has thrown his thigh out of joint to let Jacob know, hey, Jacob, you're not wrestling with a man. You've really been in my presence all night long. What are you going to do about it? And the question is, what do we do when we come into the presence of God? Sometimes we have been going through an experience, a trial, a struggle, an agonizing experience, and then that moment comes when we realize this, God's hand has been in this the whole time. What is your response? Is your response, God, get out of my life. You've thrown my joint out of place. I don't want to see you again. Do we do that to God sometimes? What was Jacob's response to this experience? Verse 26, God said, let me go for the day breaketh. Notice what Jacob said. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Jacob realized that in the decisive moment of his life, he must receive the blessing of God. Now is not the time when the chips are all down and everything is on the line to tell God to go away and get lost. Now is the time more than ever to say, God, please don't leave my presence without your blessing. And notice what God's response is in verse 27. And God said unto him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. So Jacob is reminding God, God, yes, I'm in your presence, but you're asking me my name. Don't you remember? My name means that I'm a deceiver. I'm a supplanter. Don't you realize that the reason why we've been struggling all night is because my given name describes my character that has caused me to be in this very situation that has created this whole struggle. And God knew that. That's why he said, what's your name? And Jacob said, I'm that supplanter. I'm that deceiver. And I'm asking for a blessing because I don't want to be known as being a supplanter or a deceiver anymore. And what does God say? Verse 28. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. Do you know what the name Israel means? means one who rules with God. Jacob gets a name change because he had a character change. Jacob comes face to face with God. He knows that his sin of deception, of being a supplanter, gave him an inheritance that was flawed, that was damaged, and it defined his very life, and he paid for it the rest of his life. Yet when he came into the presence of God, he said, God, I need a blessing from you. I don't want to be a deceiver anymore. I don't want to be a supplanter anymore. I want your blessing so that my life can change. And God said, what's your name? Oh, it's Jacob. That's not your name anymore. 
Because you have come into my presence and you have demonstrated that you have faith to believe in me that I, the God of the universe, can take a sinful human being like you and change your name, change your character, and redefine who you are so that you will no longer be known as a deceiver or a supplanter, but you will be known as someone who came into God's presence and prevailed. And if you can prevail in my presence, you can prevail when any human comes against you. Don't worry about Esau. You've prevailed with me. You're going to prevail with men. And that is the new inheritance that Jacob received. No longer is he the supplanter or the deceiver. He is now a prince one who rules with God. And Hosea chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, give us a, a, a more complete understanding of what happened when Jacob came into God's presence. Hosea chapter 12, verses 2 through 4. The Lord hath also a controversy with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his doings will he recompense him. He took his brother by the heel in the womb. So far this doesn't sound very good, does it? It's like God's going to punish Jacob. But then notice what happens. And by his strength he had power with God. Now notice verse 4. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. Now how did he prevail? He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel and there he spake with us. So here we see that when Jacob came into the presence of God, he wept and made supplication. He didn't just simply say, oh God, I've lived such a bad life, but you can just make it all go away. No, Jacob earnestly wept. He made supplication. He pleaded with God. It wasn't just a half-hearted two-minute prayer in the morning when he first woke up. This was something that he agonized with God earnestly. God, I need your grace. I need your strength. I need a new name. I need a new character. Please change my heart and my life. And that is a prayer that God will always hear. And that's why God can say he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. Now you realize that the experience that Jacob went through to get his new inheritance is called Jacob's time of trouble. Jacob didn't just get a new inheritance without nothing. He went through the struggle of his life. And let me read something to you from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 201. Jacob's experience during that night of wrestling and anguish represents the trial through which the people of God must pass just before Christ's second coming. And then she quotes Jeremiah 30, verses 5 through 7. The prophet Jeremiah in holy vision, looking down to this time, said, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. All faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Now, there's something interesting. She, there's an ellipsis point in the quote, and she skipped one part of Jeremiah 35 through 7. It's the part in the passage where it describes it as if men are in labor. You know, as a physician, all I can say is I'm glad that I'm not going to go through labor. Because if I did, humanly speaking, with the way I am designed, I would die. I would. And any other man in here would too. 
Only women are designed to go through labor. So what does that mean? Jacob's time of trouble, it's as if men are in labor. It means that it's something that the world has never seen before to such a degree of an intensity. There has been nothing ever like it before. When Jacob went through his night of wrestling with the angel, he had been through nothing like that in his life, despite all of the struggles, all of the trials, all of the things that he had faced in his human experience. He had never come to the point where he wrestled with God face to face all night when the destiny of his life was hanging in the balance. Jacob's time of trouble. Now let's continue the quote. Continuing on Patriarchs and Prophets, page 201. When Christ shall cease his work as mediator in man's behalf, then this time of trouble will begin. Satan had accused Jacob before the angels of God claiming the right to destroy him because of his sin. He had moved upon Esau to march against him, and during the patriarch's long night of wrestling, Satan endeavored to force upon him a sense of his guilt in order to discourage him and break his hold upon God. Has Satan ever done that to you before? I don't think I'm the only one that has experienced that, that when you come to a struggle in your life, Satan is right there to say, if God loved you, he wouldn't allow you to go through this loss of job. If God loved you, he wouldn't have caused you to lose your health. If God loved you, he wouldn't have caused your spouse to leave you. If God loved you, and it goes on and on and on, and you hear Satan's voice of doubt speaking into your heart and in your mind, and it makes you wonder, does God love me? Does he really care about me? How can could I be going through such a terrible, agonizing experience? And the only thing we can do at that point is turn to God. And notice what happened when Jacob turned to God. This is fascinating, something that you hardly ever hear about with respect to Jacob's night of wrestling, but it's right here in Patriarchs and Prophets, continuing on page 201. When in his distress... Jacob laid hold of the angel and made supplication with tears... The heavenly messenger, this is Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. The heavenly messenger, in order to try his faith, also reminded him of his sin and endeavored to escape from him. So not only is Satan saying, Jacob, look at your sins. Look how you've lived your life. There's no way that God can hear you. Then Jacob tries to turn to God, and what he's hearing from God is the same thing. God is saying, Jacob, you are a supplanter. What's your name? You're a deceiver. Don't you remember how you sinned against Esau and how you deceived Isaac, your father? Don't you remember all these things? Why are you turning to me? Jacob's time of trouble. What was Jacob's response? I mean, can you imagine coming to that moment in your life where you turn to God? And you feel like he's reminding you of where you've come short as well. Notice how the quote continues. But Jacob would not be turned away. He had learned that God is merciful. And he cast himself upon his mercy. He pointed back to his repentance for his sin and pleaded for deliverance. You know... If you haven't learned at this point in your life that God is merciful, when Jacob's time of trouble comes, 
If you see God as a, uh, an avenging God, a God who is a tyrant, a God who's out to zap you whenever you mess up, that's how you're going to feel in the time of trouble. And you aren't going to have that memory, that experience of going through the trials of life and remembering, I remember when I was on my knees and the Lord came into my life and his mercy surrounded me and lifted me up. And I know right now that it feels like God's reminding me of my sin, but I know who God really is. I know that he's a merciful God. I know that he's a loving father. I know that he will help me through this experience. I don't have to worry that he's going to abandon me because I have thrown my entire life into his hands. And no matter what happens, I trust in him. But if we haven't learned to develop that faith now, it's not going to come in the time of trouble. And then, continuing on, such will be the experience of God's people in their final struggle with the powers of evil. God will test their faith, their perseverance, their confidence in his power to deliver them. Satan will endeavor to terrify them with the thought that their cases are hopeless, that their sins have been too great to receive pardon. They will have a deep sense of their shortcomings, and as they review their lives, their hopes will sink. But remembering the greatness of God's mercy and their own sincere repentance, they will plead his promises made through Christ to helpless, repenting sinners." Their faith will not fail because their prayers are not immediately answered. They will lay hold of the strength of God as Jacob laid hold of the angel, and the language of their souls will be, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. So God promises that in the last days he will cause a people to ride upon the high places of the earth and to be fed with the inheritance of Jacob their father, the one who was a, a supplanter or a deceiver, but a one whose name was changed, and now he is Israel, one who rules with God. And the question then is, how do we know if we will be fit to meet that experience when that time comes in the last days? And that's where we go back to Isaiah 58. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 13. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing thine own words, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then, see the condition, if you follow the Sabbath the way God says, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the inheritance of Jacob thy father. So here we then see that the experience of the Sabbath for God's last day people is connected to receiving the inheritance of Jacob our father. Now how is that? What does the Sabbath have to do with receiving a name change, a character change, being called an overcomer, one who rules with God. What does the Sabbath have to do with that? And why would God say to us, you know, when you come to the Sabbath, don't do it the way you want to do it. Don't just have fun the way you would do it. Do it the way I say. You turn away your foot from doing your pleasure. It's my holy day. It's not your day. I mean, God's sounding kind of demanding here, is he not? Well, I don't think so, but you could, uh, you could say that. The holy of the Lord honorable, you shall honor him not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. 
What does that, not doing things with speaking our own words, not doing our own way, finding the Sabbath a delight, how does that relate to being fed with the inheritance of Jacob, our father? Well, first of all, there's two key points I want to make here. God's people should truly be able to call the Sabbath a delight. That's the message to God's people. Is the Sabbath a delight to you? Is the Sabbath the best and dearest day of the week where you have a day 24 hours fully and completely to rest in God, to spend time with him, to help others in need, to spend more time in Bible study and prayer, and to come and worship with fellow believers rejoicing in your experience with God? Or is the Sabbath simply a day where you don't have to study, but you're thinking about all of your biochemistry and anatomy and pathophysiology? And I've taken all those classes. So, um, and you're strategizing a study plan so that as soon as the Sabbath comes, you're going to be right back at it. So you're physically resting, but mentally you're still there in your studies the whole day. Or, and, 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 and I'm going to speak kind of straight here, and I'm not trying to point fingers at anyone in particular, but let me ex or describe to you what unfortunately has become a, the Sabbath experience for many Seventh-day Adventists, and it goes something like this. As soon as the sun goes down on Sabbath... Yes, we can go out to eat and really have fun with our friends. I can turn on my favorite TV programs again and find out if my team won in the playoffs last night. Then Sunday, you watch football for six hours. The whole week goes by. You're totally absorbed in your favorite sports teams, in studying, working, this, that, and the other. God hardly has any thought in your mind. And when the Sabbath comes, you show up to church, but you're still thinking about the things that you really enjoy doing all week long. And so when the Sabbath comes, rather than it being a delight because, oh, good, I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to worry about the cares of this life. I can focus totally on God. Instead of focusing on God, you're worrying if your team won the game last night. You're worrying about how your exams are going to go. You're worrying about all of these things that have nothing to do with delighting in the Sabbath of the Lord. And the Sabbath, if you look at it, the Sabbath experience actually defines our walk with God all week long. Because the way we ex walk with the Lord all week will be the way we walk with him on the Sabbath. If we're not walking with him during the week, we're not going to enjoy suddenly walking with him on the Sabbath. Let me give you another example. Some people struggle with depression and discouragement. And as a physician, I can say, you know, depression is a biochemical imbalance. There's a deficiency of serotonin, and I, and I understand that. And there are legitimate medical reasons for some people to experience depression, or many people who have it. However, there are some people who stay in depression through their own choice. They choose to wallow in discouragement. And it becomes a cycle of feeling so good to feel so bad so that you can f think about how bad your life is every day, each and every day. And when Sabbath comes, are you delighting in the Lord? No, you're coming to church and it's like, oh, it's been 
another awful week the way all my other awful weeks have been. Oh, God, where are you? I don't hear you anymore. And mind you, there are some times where we can feel that way, but to stay that way, to choose to stay in a depression, you're not going to delight in the Sabbath. Now, I hope that I made myself clear about how we can miss the blessing of the Sabbath. Because what the Sabbath is supposed to be, here's how the Sabbath should be a delight. So that's how it's not supposed to be. Let's talk briefly about how it's supposed to be. We spend meaningful time with God in worship every day, personally, and if we have families, with our families. That is the most delightful time of the day. Because we live in this world, we must work, we must have jobs, we must go to school and do those things that we need to do, and that's good and that's, that, that's admirable to have a good job, to study hard, to do well in school. Those are the things that we're doing simply while we're occupying until Jesus comes. So the best part of the day is the time that we spend with God. Then when Sabbath comes, we are so thankful because we have a whole day that we don't have to worry about those things that we have to do while we're occupying. We have a day that we can witness for the Lord, where we can study more, where we can pray more, where we can fellowship more with like-minded believers and gain that blessing that God designs for us. Now, what does that have to do with receiving the inheritance of Jacob. Well, notice this. If you call the Sabbath a delight, in verse 14, that means then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. So to have a meaningful relationship with Jesus means you'll have a meaningful, delightful Sabbath experience. If you don't have a meaningful relationship with Jesus, you're not going to delight in the Sabbath. So the Sabbath experience helps us. It reminds us every week that we belong to God. Because Ezekiel 20 verses 12 and 20 says that God set up the Sabbath so that he would show that he is the one who sanctifies us or sets us apart. The Sabbath reminds us that we have been set apart from the rest of the world as a distinct, separate, peculiar people that we're not like everybody else. Yes, we live in this world, but the things that we do during the week are simply connected to the fact that we are God's people on our way to the heavenly kingdom. And because we delight in the Sabbath in that way, we delight in the Lord. And notice this, and let me read a quote. This is from Desire of Ages, page 283. No other institution which was committed to the Jews tended so fully to distinguish them from surrounding nations as did the Sabbath. God designed that its observance should designate them as, as his worshipers. It was to be a token of their separation from idolatry and their connection with the true God. So we as God's people are to be separated from idolatry. Now notice the next sentence, and this is key. But in order to keep the Sabbath holy, men must themselves be holy. So in other words, if you just come to church once a week, and that's good if you do, praise the Lord. If you're struggling with something in your life, this is the best place to come where you can receive strength and encouragement. So I'm not putting that down. But if you're just doing it out of habit, you don't really want to be there, you're, and, and let me give you an extreme example. God forbid you're going out and getting drunk every night and looking at things you shouldn't be looking at and all of that, and then for 24 hours you abstain from it, but you're looking forward to getting back to it. That is not Sabbath keeping. Sabbath keeping is experiencing the holiness of God in your life all week long. And then when you come to the seventh day Sabbath, you experience the holiness of that day and you delight in it because your life is already in harmony with 
a, a day that is set apart as holy. And that's why so many times people in our church miss the blessing of the Sabbath because we've so many times adopted a theology that says it doesn't really matter if your life changes as long as you believe in Jesus as your Savior. He'll just cover you, but you'll continue to live a life of sin. Your life isn't going to change, but at least you're covered with an outward garment even though your inward life is still rotten. Well, if that's the case, you're not going to experience the Sabbath blessing. That's why righteousness by faith is connected to the Sabbath message. And continuing on, she says, um, through faith they must become partakers of the righteousness of Christ. When the command was given to Israel, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, the Lord said also to them, ye shall be holy men unto me. Only thus could the Sabbath distinguish Israel as the worshipers of God. So, the Sabbath is connected to righteousness by faith, a righteousness by faith that gives us forgiveness for the sins of our past. And praise the Lord that he gives us forgiveness. Amen? Because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And not only do we receive forgiveness, we also receive cleansing. It's justification and sanctification as a unit. That is key that we have both justification and sanctification, and that combined is what gives us the holiness, that experience that God wants us through faith to receive here in the last days. And that's why the Sabbath is connected to righteousness by faith, because the Sabbath is a demonstration of those of us who have chosen to accept Jesus in our lives. We accept his sacrifice for our sins in our lives. We receive his forgiveness, and we also receive his transforming power. Now, let me say this to you, and this is just a brief point about faith. A lot of times we talk about victory over sin, and we'll mention forgiveness, but let me say this. You have to believe that God has forgiven your sins. Because if you don't believe that God's forgiven your sins, you don't really believe that he can give you power over sin in your life. I mean, people will preach about victory over sin, but they don't believe God forgave their sins. That's how it turns into legalism. It has to be both. You believe that the sins of your past are forgiven, that God is a merciful God the way Jacob understood he is merciful, but not only is he merciful and forgives, he gives you transforming, overcoming, empowering grace. And when you experience the Sabbath in such a way so that the Sabbath is simply one day a week where you have time set aside with God where you don't have to worry about anything else and that it's a delight so that you can delight in the Lord all week long, then the promise of verse 14, then you will delight yourself in the Lord and I will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the inheritance of Jacob thy father for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Now the question is, what are the high places of the earth? So we've talked about, and I'm not going to spend as much time on this, we've talked about the inheritance of Jacob. What about riding upon the high places of the earth? What does it mean to ride upon the high places of the earth? Because that's the twofold part of this promise, that you'll ride upon the high places of the earth and you'll receive the inheritance of Jacob. What is it to ride upon the high places of the earth? 
Well, if you look in your marginal reading for the word places, it actually means hills. So you will write upon the high hills of the earth. Now let me take you to a passage in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. All right. Are we all there? Okay. Verse 2. And it shall come to pass when? In the last days. Is that relevant to our time? Amen. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted where? Above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. So there's coming a time where God's house will be on the top of the mountains, and they will be exalted above the hills. And notice what happens in verse 3. And many people shall go up and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of who? Jacob. Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Notice what's happening here. In the last days, God's people will be established in the tops of the mountains, above the hills. All nations shall come to it, and many people are going to go to the house of the Lord, to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and they will say, teach us your ways. We want to walk in your paths, and we want to follow the law of God. This is an Old Testament prophecy of the loud cry of Revelation 18, just as Isaiah 58 also makes reference to the loud cry when it talks about your righteousness shall spring forth as the morning and your health shall spring forth speedily. What's happening here? Well, and I don't have time to develop this, but the mountain of the Lord in verse 3 that is Mount Zion, or the glorious holy mountain of Daniel 11. That describes God's remnant people in the last days. These are God's people who keep the commandments of God. They keep the law of God. They are the people who can exalt the Sabbath message in a way that the rest of the world cannot understand because God's people, they teach all Ten Commandments. But not only do they understand the letter of the law, they will tell to the onlooking world as the nations flow to God's people who are sitting on the top of the mountain of the world, so to speak. God's people in Babylon, so to speak, all nations will come to God's remnant church, those who teach the law of God, and they will say, there is something in your experience that I do not have, and I want to know what it is. And God's people will say, here's what we can tell you. We delight in the Lord because we have a delight in the Sabbath experience. We have learned that each and every day we surrender our our lives to the Lord, and the seventh day of the week is a sign that we have chosen to follow God every day of the week. And we, therefore, have joy in the Lord. We delight in the Lord. And this is the time in earth's history where Revelation 18:1 says, an angel comes down from heaven having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory because people will see, here is a group of people who not only have the letter of the law, they are a demonstration of the law. They are a demonstration of the character of Christ. They have a delight in the Lord that I don't have. That's why the Sabbath experience is connected to God's last day people receiving 
the inheritance of Jacob. And let's go back to Isaiah 58. And we're almost done here. Isaiah chapter 58. So we have that Sabbath experience. And I might add, if you look at Isaiah 2, people say, we will walk in your paths. In verse 12 of Isaiah 58, it says, God's people will be the restorer of paths to dwell in. So you can see the connection between the two passages. Okay. So the Sabbath experience. Then we receive the promise of riding upon the high places of the high hills of the earth. We will receive the power of the latter rain to give the loud cry message because we enter into that Sabbath experience. And mind you, if we do not have the experience of righteousness by faith, the people of the world will find nothing in us to come to you to say, teach us of your ways, because they will just see us as being like them. But they will see, teach us of your ways. We want to know what you have. And we will ride upon the high places of the earth. We will have the glorious of experience of giving the loud cry of the ladder empowered by the latter rain but then we will go through Jacob's time of trouble and after we go through Jacob's time of trouble just as Jacob did then we will receive the promise of being fed with the inheritance of Jacob, our father. God will look at his last day people and he will say, I have a group of people. They were like Jacob. They were deceivers. They were supplanters. They were depressed. They were discouraged. They were known as the biggest gossiper at church. They were known for looking more like the world than looking like the people of the Lord. They were this. They were that. But by my grace and through my power, I gave them a message in the last days that helped them to understand that God is merciful. God is gracious. God is empowering. And they chose to give their lives fully and completely to me. They learned to delight in me and so when they came to the struggle of their life in Jacob's time of trouble, I gave them the same inheritance I gave to Jacob. I changed their name. I gave them a new inheritance. I gave them the inheritance of the promise that you will rule with God. And it's no coincidence that in the message to Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, God says to him who overcomes, Will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne? To the Laodicean church, God's last day, judgment our people, a church to whom God is knocking on the door of our hearts because we haven't let him come in. We'd rather let him be on the outside, cover us, but don't change us. God is saying, when you let me come in, you will be empowered to go through the last days to receive that inheritance so that you can rule with me in heaven above. Amen. And that is the message to us today. How about you? Do you want to stay like Jacob with the first inheritance? Do you want to be known for being a deceiver, a supplanter, a womanizer, someone who's discouraged, someone who's this, that, or the other thing? God has something better. God has promised to give us a new name, a new character. And if you want to have that experience and to be part of God's last day, people, I invite you to stand with me as we close with prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, what an amazing God you are.
that you would take someone like me, that you would take someone like any of us here in this room, and through your mercy, you would take us from being a supplanter, a deceiver, someone who is so sinful. And through your mercy, you will forgive us, and you will also transform us into the likeness of Christ. Lord, we need that. You've been waiting a long time to develop a group of people who will find in the Sabbath experience not a day of rules to weigh us down, but a day of delight where we don't have to worry about the cares of this life, that we can delight in you the entire day. Lord, I pray that we would enter into this experience, and if we've been lax in our Sabbath understanding, that you would call us to a higher experience. If we've been lax in our walk with you, that we would strengthen that walk, and that when you come in the clouds of heaven, we would be ready to meet you. Be with each one of us here, and continue to be with Advent Hope. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.